Welcome to CNBC. We are so glad that you are here with us worshiping together as the body of Christ today. We're going to say our memory verse for the month of September together. It comes from the book of John, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Let's say it together. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34, and 35. Thank you. This is an interesting week. It's always an interesting week, and it's a week that, that always uh, causes special reflection in my heart. It was my sophomore year of college. I'm going to age myself this morning for many of you. It was around 9 a.m. I was coming down the stairs. I was already ready to head out for another day of classes. And as I came down the first flight of stairs in my dorm, I noticed an unusual sight. You see, in, in the college that I went to, the dorms, they had one TV in them. Just one. And that TV was a big, huge tube TV that would take about 20 people to carry, probably. And it was in the middle floor lounge, and there was a group of guys that were surrounded around that TV. Many of us in here remember and know why. About 15 minutes earlier that morning, the first plane had crashed into the North Tower. And we watched this stunning news feed, and I remember my jaw was on the floor. There was silence. Many people that were in the room began to text and call their family. And I remember at first that some were able to get through, but as the morning waned, many calls were not able to get through because the lines were so overloaded. Where I went to school, Clark Summit University is only a two-hour drive away from New York City, we had many students on campus who were from New York, who lived in the state of New York, who were even living near the city. We had many trips that we took into the city for open-air evangelism. And we watched in shock together when approximately 9.03 a.m. another plane descended into the south face of the South Tower. And I remember at that point, there were chairs in the dorm around the outside of the room and people had started sliding chairs up around the TV knowing that we were going to be camping there. And I remember collapsing into one of the chairs. Our classes were canceled. It was a time to mourn, a time to grieve together. And we sat around that TV nearly all Morning, 9.37 a.m., another plane descended into the western wall of the Pentagon. At 9.59 a.m., the south tower of the World Trade Centers collapsed. At 10.03 a.m., Flight 93 crash-landed in Somerset County, Pennsylvania. 10.28 a.m., the North Tower of the World Trade Center collapsed. At 10.50 a.m., five stories of the Pentagon collapsed. And at 5.20 p.m., 
47 World Trade Center, a 42-47 story building close to the World Trade Center towers in New York City, collapsed. On that day, friends, our country changed forever. And that day and those moments crossed my mind frequently on Friday, as I suspect for many of you in this room as well. The bravery of so many men and women in our country on display, our first responders, our firefighters, our policemen, our service men and women, our community leaders, pastors that were running to the fray, politicians. Some of us remember this scene just a few days later when the often and, and known as, as more of a quiet spoken and gentle president, George W. Bush, arrived on the scenes. And you can see the picture as I can see the picture. There was a fireman that was standing on top of some of the rubble around where the towers had fallen. And President Bush ascended to the top of the rubble and he took a bullhorn with him. And he put his arm, he put his arm around this fireman. And as a weak, wounded, fear-filled nation looked on, he said these words, quote, I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knocked these building downs will hear all of us soon. End quote. Where does a man or a woman find the courage and strength to rise in the face of such adversity and speak words of peace, hope, and comfort? Who is capable of producing that kind of power in the hearts and the minds of individuals who otherwise may be overcome by these moments where fear is front and center? And as we enter our text today, friends, as we continue our study in the Gospel of John, fear is front and center. The disciples are hidden away. They're locked in a room. And they cower. They're anticipating the worst from the Jews. And then, in steps Jesus. And everything changes. If you have your Bibles today, you want to take them, you want to turn to John chapter 20. Today we're going to be in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. Let's pray. Father God, this is where we find our unity in a world that seeks to tear us apart. We come together, we surround and encompass your word as a body of Christ this morning, and we unite around the person and work of Jesus, your son. 
And who he was in these moments to the disciples is still who he is today for us. And we celebrate that. Lord, your spirit is working even now through the ministry of your word to go forth. And there are some who gather today, who sit today, and Lord, we don't feel peace. But because of Jesus, we can know great peace. And so, Father, we pray that you would turn our hearts, change our minds, open our eyes, help us to see and to hear. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they had saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So here we are, it is Sunday evening, the message that Jesus had given to Mary to proclaim has been proclaimed. The disciples are gathered, the doors are locked, and the disciples are hunkered down waiting on whatever might be coming next. Fear is motivating their behavior. The disciples had witnessed firsthand what the Jewish leaders were capable of. The trial and the punishment that Jesus went through would have been enough to make any of us in this room lock ourselves behind closed doors. And suddenly, in the text, isn't it amazing? It doesn't tell us how this happened, but suddenly Jesus is there. He's in their midst. And he stands among them and look at the first Words he speaks to them in verse 19, so powerful. Peace be with you. And I wonder this morning as you sit today, as as I grew up and maybe as you grew up, we talked about what the opposite of peace is, what the opposite emotion of peace is. And some may say the opposite emotion of peace is fear. and, And that's probably a correct answer. Some might say that the opposite of fear is not courage, but rather peace. In the face of this anxiety, in the face of this stress and fear, Jesus' first message to his disciples is a message of peace. Peace. And there was another time, you'll remember this in the book of Mark, where Jesus delivered a similar message of peace. It was different, different context. 
but powerful nonetheless. The disciples were in a boat, and it says in Mark chapter 4, Jesus awoke and he rebuked the wind and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And for the disciples, through their time in ministry with Jesus, the disciples had seen, they had witnessed, they had encountered together with him many different storms. What they had come to understand and learn is this, that the peace of Jesus gives us the endurance to weather any storm, come what may. And friends, this is a different kind of peace than the world promises. This is not the same peace that's offered in the world. Jesus talked about this peace in John chapter 14 when he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. There's fear in this room. Jesus' peace is available. And it's interesting as you sit here today and we reflect on this reality, the peace that's promised by the world will eventually leave us empty, fearful, and hopeless. The peace that the world promises is one that we're told we can achieve. If we just do enough, if we just work hard enough, if we just go over here and talk to this person or just go over here and talk to that person, we can achieve this peace. But the peace of Jesus is very different, friends. The peace of Jesus is a peace that only he could achieve. And it's a peace that's to rule in our hearts for eternity. And consider this, friends, that the disciples who were gathered in this room, by their own efforts and by their own energies, they would never be able to know the peace that Jesus is offering. Jesus brings to them the peace that he's accomplished for them brings it to them and and it's amazing what's going on here friends Jesus's last words to the world and his first words to these disciples who had gathered are closely related are they not Jesus's last words on the cross it is finished they relate to his finished work whereby he took our place friends By taking our sins upon himself, atoning for our sin and rebellion against God. Peace be with you is what Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection accomplished for his disciples and for us. Because of Jesus' great sacrifice on the cross, where he took God's wrath upon himself turning it away from those who would believe we can have peace with God. Think about that. Jesus allows for us to have peace with God. What is required of us? Belief. Faith. 
When we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He sends to us His Holy Spirit to dwell within us. His presence is now an ever-present reality in our lives. And the peace that He promises, friends, Jesus' peace, is connected to His presence in our lives. And it has the power to calm our fears. This is the peace of God that is offered to us. Remember last week it was Mary who was distracted. There was no peace until she heard and recognized the voice of Jesus. He was present in her storm and his peace followed. Jesus alludes to the peace that he's offering here in John chapter 16 when he's teaching his disciples. Listen to what he said. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. We know a little tribulation today, do we not? We look around, we know a little tribulation. But look at what he says. Take heart, I have overcome the world. The disciples who were gathered together in this room are seeing and believing and they can rest assured that no matter what the Jews might do to them, whatever tribulation might befall them, they can have peace. Peace. Now what follows this declaration of peace that Jesus gives his disciples is very interesting. It's a physical revelation. Jesus has just endured one of the most tormenting and painful physical punishments of his time. The storm that he had just endured was more devastating than any the disciples had encountered with him. Jesus' body had been broken, his wrist and his ankles and his side had been pierced. He was battered and bloodied and buried and yet now here he stands, whole, alive. In their midst. Watch what he does. The first part of verse 20. Look at what he says in verse 20. First part. When he had said this. Peace be with you. He showed them his hands. And his side. He showed them. The act of showing his wounds accomplishes a few different realities for the disciples. First, it proves to them that indeed this is Jesus. Not some stranger, not some guy they didn't know, not a Jew looking to persecute them, but their Messiah, Jesus. They see the marks, they see the nails which had been driven into his hands, they they see where the spear had been thrust into his side. They know that they're seeing the risen Lord. And the other reality that follows their recognition of Jesus is stated in the second part of verse 20. Seeing the risen Lord, look at what happens. Look at what kind of response is evoked. Look at the second half of verse 20. Then the disciples were what? Glad. Glad. The word here literally means to rejoice. And indeed, we should rejoice. For look at what the peace and the presence of Jesus 
has accomplished. Jesus has taken Mary, a woman who wanted to cling, and he turned her towards his greatest purpose for her life. And now he's standing before disciples who were cowering in fear. And he's turning their fear into rejoicing. Friends, the reality is this. When we recognize the presence of the Lord in our moments of greatest fear and adversity, Jesus wields the power to turn our fear into rejoicing. And friends, this world is going to throw all kinds of storms at us. Who we focus on in the midst of the storm is what is most important. Where are our eyes? So important. I remember a day or so after 9-11, on campus we held a candlelight vigil. We gathered at, at, at a, well it was called Baptist Bible College at the time, now it's called Clark Summit University. There's a rotunda. And we climbed the rotunda into the foyer, and in the foyer students and professors gathered and they prayed and they sung hymns and worship songs these are the moments i remember in those days feeling most comforted and most assured when we are focused on the person and presence of jesus in the midst of our storms discomforts and uncertainties we can find a peace and a hope that is uncommon for the unbelieving world. And in these times, in these moments, Jesus has a way of revealing his next steps, clarifying his purpose for these moments in our lives. I talk to so many of you, and, and we all, I feel like, have a very similar discussion a lot of times related to COVID. I don't know what God's purposes are in the midst of all this. I know here is where we stand. Here is where he has us. It's not by accident. He's sovereign. He's on the throne. He's reigning. What's his purpose? What does he want us to know? How should we be growing in this season? All questions we should be asking him, pleading with him to help us know. And as I consider the posture of Mary and the posture of the first disciples that Jesus revealed his risen body to, I am reminded that come what may, clinging and cowering are not the places that he has called us to. Greater is he who dwells in us than he who is in the world. And Jesus has a greater purpose for us, friends, does he not? Look at what he does again in verse 29. Look at what he repeats, or sorry, verse 21. Look at what he repeats. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He uses that phrase again to refocus them. You see, they're rejoicing, their joy, their excitement at seeing Jesus could perhaps cause them to get distracted. But he is a mission. He is a mission. Second half of verse 21, look at what he says. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now in the other Gospels, we have great commission accounts. They're a lot longer than this. But this is John's Gospels, great commission account. It's much shorter than the others, but it's no less powerful. 
And Jesus says this statement very succinctly. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So the question may be, how did the Father send the Son? If we're being sent in the same manner that the Father sent the Son, then it may be important for us to consider the answer to this question. How was the Son sent? And in the Gospel of John alone, this has been a theme. We've been going through this book for over two years now, and nearly 40 times Jesus has talked about being sent, specifically sent by the Father. And the purpose for Jesus being sent was to glorify God and accomplish the purposes of God in the salvation of humankind. And Jesus gives us a clue of how he was sent in his high priestly prayer. Take a look at John 17, verses 17 and 18. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. Friends, Jesus was sent, set apart from the world. He was different with a message of truth. And how did this work itself out in his ministry, this being set apart? What does it look like to be set apart? As one sent from God, friends, Jesus did things differently than the unbelieving world that had surrounded him. Jesus spoke differently. He lived differently. He loved differently. The Gospels are a testimony of what this looked like and how it affected those who God drew into his life. And as he was sent, so too now was he sending his disciples. Friends, something must be different. For those of us that call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, something must be different than the unbelieving world around us. We must speak differently. We must live differently. We must love differently. Quite simply, we're called to this. And this is one of the ways that Jesus reveals himself to the unbelieving world. When we live in this manner. When the world says, all hope is lost. Jesus' work through us keeps us hopeful. And sometimes, sometimes motivates hope in others. Because others look at our lives and say, how come they can be so hopeful? I have no hope. And sometimes when we're hopeful, Jesus uses our hope to motivate belief in someone else. When the world says all love is lost, there's no chance at reconciliation and moving forward. Sometimes Jesus works through reconciliation in our own lives to motivate others. To reconcile. How did he do that in their relationship? How did he do that? When the world says that our sin and shame are too great. Jesus' work 
within us, guiding us towards confession and repentance, knowing His grace and mercy and forgiveness are immeasurable. Sometimes when others see this work of Jesus in our lives, this work that leads us towards repentance, and they recognize the peace that follows, they too are motivated to repent of sin and turn to God. However, friends, what we know is that not all will respond to Jesus. Not all responded to Jesus in his ministry while he was on earth. And not all will respond to Jesus in our lives. The people that he brings into our pathways, not all of them will respond to Jesus. And when we consider how Jesus was sent and what it ultimately cost him, we must also consider what being sent in the same manner that he was sent might ultimately cost us. cost to discipleship, friends. And therefore, it is so vitally important that we recognize His presence and His power is with us. He is with us. And we don't have to look any further than the disciples. We know the end that many of Jesus' disciples face. They face torture. They face punishment. Cruel deaths. Yet they were able to endure because of Jesus who gave them the power to carry on the work to stand up under the scrutiny and oppression to spread the gospel in the face of persecution it's the spirit that Jesus gives and just as Jesus was sent with the spirit of God upon him so too are disciples today sent with the same exact spirit. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought that the spirit that came upon the Lord at his baptism, that descended like a dove and rested upon him, that that same exact spirit lives in you and you and you and you? The power In verse 22, Jesus will give his disciples a foretaste of exactly what that power looks like. Look at what he says in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. This is a foretaste, friends. And said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we have to talk a little bit because there's some interesting things happening here. This is an interesting verse in the Bible that has a few different perspectives, and we want to break it down together. There are some who believe that John is meshing the upper room account of Acts 2 together with his words here in John 20. There are some who hold that view. However, I believe that if we look at the context of John's gospel and the context of Acts 2, that there's enough differences between the two that would argue that these are separate events. In other words, I would say that John is not merging the account of Acts 2 with his words in chapter 20, verse 22. These are separate accounts. And I land here for two primary reasons. First, I believe that John's gospel foreshadows this very moment earlier in the book. And we'll further unpack that together in a second. 
But second, and perhaps more convincingly, I believe that in Acts 2, Jesus has already ascended. The text of Acts 2 does not mention the presence of Jesus. That doesn't mean that he might not have been present. However, if he were present, I believe the author of Acts would have noted his presence. So how does John's gospel foreshadow this foretaste of the Spirit? To see this, we have to go all the way back to John 7. It's on the screen, John 7, verses 37 to 39. Listen to how he foreshadows this foretaste that we're seeing today. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So follow me here. For those who believe that these events are merged, they believe that Jesus was not glorified until he was fully ascended. So they would argue that since the Spirit wouldn't be given until after he ascended, this must be the same account as Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. For those who believe that these are two separate events, we would hold that Jesus was glorified when he resurrected and conquered death. And when we go to the beginning of John 17, Jesus is praying the following words in verses 1 and 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom have been given to him. Those who hold that John 20, 22 and Acts 2 are separate events, as myself, connect the glory of Jesus to his death and resurrection rather than solely to his ascension. But regardless of whatever position one might take, in the end, we all come to the same conclusions. We all come to the same conclusions, and they're this. Jesus was glorified, whether before or after his ascension, and Jesus gave his spirit as he promised he would to those who were his disciples. Both sides come to the same conclusion. It's just a matter of timeline. So the disciples were being sent forth, set apart, both with the message of truth and the example of Jesus set before them. And now Jesus will send them in power as he breathes upon them and beckons them to receive the Holy Spirit. So what is happening here? It's a good question. Pastor, author, and theologian John Piper says that in this moment Jesus performs, quote, a kind of acted out parable. He didn't say receive the Holy Spirit at this very moment. He said, in effect, realize that my breath, my life, my word will be in the Holy Spirit. End quote. Friends, the Holy Spirit is not just a deposit that guarantees our future inheritance. That's part of what he is. But he is also a powerful presence that serves to remind us of this very valuable biblical truth echoed in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Holy Spirit, friends, is our assurance that God will never leave or forsake those who are His. 
And those who believe in Jesus receive the Holy Spirit. And it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we accomplish the work of the ministry that we've been given to do. This so that we do not boast on our own strength. We're not doing it, friends. It's the power of God. So we might ask, if the Holy Spirit is at work within us, what will be one of the prominent or preeminent ways that we will witness his work in our lives? It's a good question. The answer is in verse 23. Take a look at what it says in our last verse today. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Because our ministry is the work of the Lord in us and through us, this text does not mean, friends, that we as disciples are literally the ones doing the forgiving. Some have read that text that way throughout history. That is not what that text is saying. As disciples of Jesus, we're not the ones giving forgiveness or withholding forgiveness. We are proclaiming the message of truth that we've been given by God. The Spirit is working through the ministry of the Word to convict of sin. And guess what follows? Forgiveness. One of the primary functions of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin, and as He accomplishes His work through the weak and wounded messengers that we are, that He sends forth, the fruit of forgiveness follows. Forgiveness always follows genuine faith. And as we go forth preaching, teaching, and proclaiming the gospel, the Holy Spirit will draw some men and draw some women unto God. And when they declare their faith, we can tell them with assurance, when they declare their faith, we can tell them with assurance, your sins have been forgiven. And if someone comes to us and asks if they're forgiven of their sins, yet they're unwilling to declare faith in Jesus Christ, we can simply say to them, your sins have not been forgiven. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What sets a genuine believer apart from someone who has not yet believed? A genuine believer has experienced the freedom that comes from the forgiveness of sins. What a freeing reality that comes behind the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. And friends, it's not something that we do. It's something that He accomplishes through us. And so we ask, how might our lives look in light of these realities? Sometimes it is fear that draws us together. I can't argue that in, in, in the foyer of Jackson Hall Rotunda, I'm sure that there were many who gathered out of fear for what might happen next. Fear of the unknown, the what ifs, the what could be. Sometimes it is those things that draw us together. But Jesus calls us as his disciples not to pack together in fear, but rather to go out in peace, motivated by love, with a message of truth and the power of the Spirit who's accomplishing the forgiveness of sins in the life of all who believe. And he promises that his presence and his power will be at work in our lives and when we walk in love, caring for the needs that he places, of the people he places in our pathways, he promises to accomplish his purposes 
through us, team would to come. As we pray. Father, there is great peace available to us. Father, there is the promise of the power of your spirit going before us. Going before the message of truth that you have given to us. The promise, Lord, that where there is faith, there will be forgiveness, the forgiveness of sin. There's hope. There's love. There's faith. And it's because of who you are. And your great work. And Lord, as we go about our business and we face the storms that are brought into our lives. I pray we would hold fast to you. And we would recognize that indeed it is you who is holding us fast. Motivate us by the power of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.